We are here to talk about uh, Charles Spurgeon. It's our second Sunday on Spurgeon. We have been propelling ourselves through church history. We are, my grandmother's getting very delighted because I think uh, maybe next week, it may be a week or two off, but we're getting close to the, the Church of Christ and, and Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone and some other things that came out of the 1800s. We've still got the Pentecostal movement that comes and the holiness movement that comes in the end of the 1800s and into the 1900s. We've got a few more theologians that we're going to look at. We're going to look at C.S. Lewis and uh, uh, give a little more time to Francis Schaeffer and, and a few others, but... We are getting close to ending, and so already I've started getting a few emails from people and, and even a, a phone call about where we might go next. And I, I tell you, if you're interested in, in throwing out some ideas of where we go next, I'm all ears. And uh, Wade Liberator and David Fleming, two of our pastors, are, are very uh, uh, supportive of, of what we're doing in here as far as, as kind of a different curriculum than the rest of the church. So we've got their blessing as long as it's something that, that seems godly and right and useful. So continue to give us those ideas. With all of that as introduction, let's get back into Spurgeon. I told you last week that Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of the first mega church, and it was pointed out to me that I was wrong. Because in Acts chapter 2, you'll find that over 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. And assuming they all worshiped together for at least a day, they were a mega church before they dispersed out. So let's take an exception to my error and say that in modern times, the first mega church and, and, and Bible scholars define a mega church as a church of over 2,000 people. Um, uh, this is a megachurch. This is almost a megachurch class, uh, megachurch. Uh, you know, we, we actually on the rolls number 500 plus in this class and our attendance uh, on days, uh, well, today is probably about 300 looking out there and, and maybe a few more. Um, so we're not quite megachurch unless you add the whole thing with all of our kids that are in Bible study or something. But, but this gives a, a, an idea. This is actually considered a, a large congregation just right here not to mention our church, but ours is a rare mega church. It's an exception. It's, it's very much like Spurgeon's mega church in one sense. When Spurgeon went to preach at the age of 19, he started pastoring. And I say pastoring because Spurgeon was never a fan of the word reverend. Until Spurgeon came along, most Baptist pastors were called reverend. But it was Spurgeon who said reverend's not the biblical term. The biblical term is pastor. And so it was Spurgeon that launched a crusade for this. Spurgeon was also never ordained because he didn't see ordination in the the New Testament as well. So uh, aside from those peculiarities, he comes into this church and at the age of 19, there are 232 members when he shows up. By the time uh, uh, he leaves, it's 5,311 members. And those are members I'll remind you what I told you last week. You didn't get to be a member of his church unless he interviewed you personally and uh, decided that you, in fact, belonged there. Um, the, the attendance of this church was 10, 12, 14,000 each Sunday. This is the church where once every six weeks or so, Spurgeon would announce, please, next Sunday, no members come. We've got to have room for the visitors. 
And so uh, every six weeks or so, it'd be a non-members church day and more visitors could get in that way. Uh, they were limited by the space. They didn't have microphones, though at one point London becomes, uh, uh, they, they did reach a point where they actually got lights and electricity and all in the church. But this church was one that grew, unable to handle all of the visitors, a huge church. And we talked last week about the differences between a number of mega churches that exist today and the mega church of Spurgeon. A number that exists today have been called by the media Disney Jesus churches. Because they don't really speak much about Jesus. If they mention Jesus at all, it's very much in a Disney-like atmosphere. It's also been called religion light. Because there's very little said about sin. Very little said about redemption. It's almost a, a much more a motivational speech than it is anything else. That's why these churches have been labeled self-help savior churches because you go to them and it's almost like going to hear a self-help book being taught by the minister. It's not so Spurgeon's church. Thank God. Not so our church, a church where Jesus was preached and he was preached as crucified to come and save sinners because sinners was something real. Spurgeon's church was not like the modern mega churches that really are more pep rally than they are church. So with that as our background, we started last week looking at Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There he is as a young fella. He came in. He found his wife to be at the church. He introduced himself. Of course, she knew who he was. He was the preacher. He wanted her to find him charming. He bought her a gift, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. She decided he was a country hick with really bad hair. And that's what she said. Now, look at his hair. He got it cut after she said that. He got it cut shorter. I don't think it's that bad, though. But then again, I've never been accused of having good hair. Um, Spurgeon is there. He's preaching. Within a year or two, the publicity is out all over London. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands are coming to hear him. Now, I sent a letter out. I hear he's coming here today. And I see more people here today than it would be here earlier. But I was expecting ten to 12,000 because that's typically <laughs> what he would have pulled over in England. Um, maybe people didn't take my letter seriously. I don't know. But as a student who studied preaching, and, and when I was in school, the, I took the preaching courses. It was part of the, the degree that I have. And it was fascinating to take preaching courses. And so as I was writing this lesson, I, I, I had a fear that I'm writing a lesson that's going to interest more people who are interested in preaching than anything else. But I don't think that's the bottom line of the lesson. But if you do get interested in preaching at all, Let's talk about it for a little bit. The hardest part of preaching for most preachers, and I haven't asked Pastor David this, I'll bet you it ranks at least in his top three. The hardest part about preaching is trying to figure out what you're going to preach on. You get the text itself finally, and sometimes it's assigned to you. You know, you, you, David right now is preaching through Ephesians in our church. And so he knows what's coming next. It's going to be the next passage in Ephesians. And Spurgeon said, I'd get my text, and once I got my text, I'd make a beeline to the cross. Because whatever I was going to preach from out of the Bible, what concerned me most is what does this say about Jesus? And if I can make a beeline to the cross, bam! then I've got the message that I want to get out. But still the perplexing, perplexing problem. What text should I preach from? What should I say? 
Spurgeon was not one of these guys who stood up and gave sermons that were topical in nature, generally. He didn't generally stand up and just preach and say, okay, uh, today I want to talk about, you know, seven ways to a better you. Spurgeon instead would use scripture as his text and his source. And in trying to do that, he would search through the scriptures to try and figure out what text. Now, Spurgeon started a preaching school. And one of the most fascinating things for me to do is to read through the lessons he gave his preaching students. He'd teach them how to use their voice. I mean, there's a whole lesson on it. He'd talk about how important it is to use your voice. He says, any of you have any guitars or, or instruments or pianos or harps? How many of them have only one string where the note can never change? Nobody. Because nobody's going to listen to that doing, 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 doing. Even if you do it fast a few times. Doing, 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 well, what makes you think anybody's going to want to listen to you preach if you do it in a humdrum, general, monotone voice, blah, blah, blah. And so he taught his students. He taught them about hand gestures. There's a, he's got drawings he handed out to them that we've still got of how to use hand gestures, how to talk about something that's low, that becomes something that's tall. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty dramatic. So, so Spurgeon is there and he's teaching his students. Well, he had an entire lecture on how to select a text to teach from. And what he said is, is when you select a text, you don't just willy-nilly find one. Here, I have a Bible. You don't just find one that seems to have the same word that you're going to use that day or a word you want to talk about, says you just need to spend a lot of time reading and studying. And you'll find a scripture when you do it that instead of you grabbing that scripture, that scripture grabs you. And it just grabs you by the throat. And it won't let you go. And when you've got that scripture that grabs you by the throat, that won't let you go, hold on to it and chew on it and fight it for all it's worth. Live it. Breathe it. Inhale it. Intoxicate on it. Take that scripture and let it just overcome you. He says, and then you know what you're ready to preach on. Spurgeon would spend more time trying to find his scripture than he would writing his sermons. He generally would write his sermon the night before he preached it. When he'd write his sermons, it was never, never a big word for word. He didn't have the handouts like I have for you. He wouldn't write it like that initially. Let's see if I can focus this in. This is an actual sermon. These are his notes from one of his sermons. We'll show you big. This is it. This is his whole sermon. Okay? Now, let's focus it where you can maybe read some. This sermon is Good Tidings of Great Joy. Can you sort of make that out? And then this is his introduction and the things he's going to say. He's going to talk about joy as a theme. And then he's going to talk about joy to the people, or joy to them, I guess. Joy to the people, joy to all the people, to all the saved, to all the obedient. And you see how he's going to do it parallel. And, and he does, when you read his sermons, it's, it's, it's got this cadence to it almost, where he'll, he'll use the same phraseology over and over and over and over. If you look, 
he does the same thing here. He says, uh, uh, let me see if I can make that even a little bigger for you all. Okay. Yeah, sort of. The guy uh, uh, didn't write too good. Not, not in something. Uh, yeah, sure. Not in something else. Not in philosophy. Not in superstition. Not in wealth. Sure. Whatever you think. Now, <laughs> then finally he reaches a point where these are his three main points of his sermon. The joy, the people, and the sign. And he'll jot a few notes down of what he wants to say. And then he'll have his conclusion down at the bottom. And so that's the way he did his sermons. And uh, uh, he would find that text and he would preach it. And he would not let go till he was done with it. Wonderful to, to read. And, and as a student of preaching to see. Uh, you know, when you sit down and, and I write these lessons each week and, and, and you, you, you sit down and you just think, OK, now, how do I organize this? How do I structure this? It's enlightening to see how someone else does it. Now, having said that, uh, if he ever shows up today, you'll get to hear one of his sermons. And I've asked him to speak in in very clear modern day language, tried to get rid of his accent because uh, uh, it's really tough to, for us to understand that British accent sometimes. Um, he said to me, don't you know the Queen's English? I said, well, of course she's English. What else would she be? And <laughs> any chance to use that joke, I take advantage of. Um, um, but uh, uh, if he shows up, we'll get an idea of how he would go through these sermons. And I want to tell you, he did work hard on speaking in everyday language. Spurgeon, more than any other, worked to be a communicator. One of the biggest things his detractors would, would throw rocks at him over is they considered him entertaining. I don't agree with that criticism of Spurgeon. Spurgeon, an entertainer to me, is someone who entertains for entertainment's purpose. Ends, just to make people enjoy it. Spurgeon was never that way. Spurgeon entertained... To communicate the gospel. He wasn't a stand-up comedian. He wasn't trying to get people to like him. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. But as he told his students, he said God was able to put Adam to sleep to bring Eve out of his rib, out of his body. But God has never been able to use preachers to put people to sleep to get the sin out of the people. So please... Don't put people to sleep. And if you want to throw rocks at me, Spurgeon said, for telling a joke here and there, I'll confess I am guilty. But I would rather be guilty of telling a joke while ministering the gospel of Jesus than of being so boring that everybody goes to sleep and doesn't hear the gospel of Jesus. And so he was a very good communicator. He worked hard. Now, you hear that and you'd think you were going to read his sermons and it'd just be one ha-ha after another. No, in fact, he'd tell a joke maybe once in a sermon. Maybe not even that. He might go two or three sermons without telling a joke. But back then, that was still that he would tell a joke in a sermon was in itself uh, pretty unusual. Now, Spurgeon spoke to his students and he said, if you're going to be a preacher, here are some things you need to be. I tell you these because I think that these apply to every one of us who are Christians. If you're going to be a minister of God's message to someone else, 
these are no less true for you and for me than they are for the preachers that Spurgeon taught. He said, number one, preachers themselves have to be saved. Now, to us, that might seem like a gimme, like, of course, preachers are saved. But at the time Spurgeon's preaching, there are still preachers who claim to be speaking on God's authority because of apostolic succession. The apostles appointed, designated so-and-so, who designated so-and-so, who designated so-and-so. And we trace it all the way back. And so I have authority over God's church because of apostolic appointment. Spurgeon says... Well, if you want to stand up and have authority over God's church, first thing you need to do is be saved. Then he said, second thing you need to do is a preacher's pulse of godliness needs to beat strongly. You can't just be a, 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 a preacher who says something wonderful but doesn't live it. Your godliness needs to not just be in your message, it needs to be in your life. Does that make sense? It was so important he said it as his third point. He said to his students, he said, a preacher's personal character must agree with his message. And he told the story of a preacher who could really preach up a storm. But as soon as he got out of the pulpit, he was like the worst sinner anybody in the church ever saw. And he just had absolutely no regard for how he was living. And he said it made for the most unusual circumstance. Because when the preacher was in the pulpit preaching, everybody said, oh, please don't ever leave. Stay in the pulpit. But when he left and he's out in the world living, everybody said, please don't ever get back into the pulpit. He says, that's just not the way it needs to be. So Spurgeon stands up and Spurgeon gives his speaking, uh, his his, uh, sermons. And when he does so, he would speak in real talk. And he would keep people awake. And he would communicate with them. And he spoke very directly and very bluntly. And he spoke very inspirationally. There comes around once in a blue moon. Once in a blue moon, someone who's able to speak and look at you and speak to the depth of your heart and motivate you. And it doesn't happen often. And you can have all the eloquence in the world, but if you don't have the message of God, you are giving a cheerleading motivational speech. And you're leaving people ultimately empty eternally. Or you might have those communication skills and have an evil message. And you're able to turn an entire country against the Jews and others and be an Adolf Hitler. I mean, Hitler had the ability. And look where it led him and his people. But Spurgeon had this ability. And before Spurgeon comes... I wanted to play for y'all someone who I believe in my lifetime I've seen Spurgeon in the delivery of his speaking more so than anybody I I know of. Um, If you ever have a chance to listen to Martin Luther King Jr., you will hear him speak in ways that that read like Charles Spurgeon. Now, Martin Luther King Jr., most of the speeches we have of his were very much motivated by civil rights issues. Don't get me wrong. Charles Spurgeon spoke out. He spoke out against slavery. He spoke out strongly for the rights of the poor and the downtrodden. And he spoke out against the the overwhelming riches of the, the power structure. 
But Spurgeon was always preaching in a church setting that was somewhat different than the calling and ministry of Martin Luther King that we're most familiar with. So you need to recognize Martin Luther King was frequently speaking beyond just his immediate audience to a, a certain calling and circumstances. But if you listen to Martin Luther King Jr., you'll hear him use illustrations. You'll hear him talking in the famous speech, uh, uh, and I'm going to show a clip of it in a minute, but in this famous speech in Washington, D.C., it's a hot August. He's speaking to, to uh, literally over 100,000 people who are out in this humid, hot heat. And he speaks about the heat of oppression. And he speaks about a cool oasis. And he uses metaphor and he uses illustrations seamlessly in ways that you don't even realize and it's like Spurgeon who tells you not to be a wind-up doll Christian who comes into church and gets wound up and then is able to go out there and do the mechanics of what you're going to do until you wind down. Because you've got to go back and have someone wind you back up. He says, no, tap into the God who keeps you wound up always so that your actions are genuine and they're yours and they flow from Him, not some little crank toy. And, and used illustrations like this over and over and over. Another thing Martin Luther King did... When you hear him speak, even if he's speaking to a secular audience, he will speak in Scripture. He'll be talking about the mountains being made, uh, being brought down and the valleys raised up and the glory of the Lord being revealed and all flesh seeing it together. And if you don't know the Bible well enough, you don't know he's using Scripture because he doesn't say, as it says in you know, Isaiah, generally. And it was the same with Spurgeon. Spurgeon had so much scripture in his mind. This was a guy who had a basic photographic memory for things he read. And he had so much scripture in his mind, his sermons weave scripture in and out. I've put one of his sermons in your lessons this morning. It's the one I've asked him to come deliver if he ever shows up. And, and that sermon is one where you'll see the scriptures just woven in there, but he doesn't identify them as scripture. The use of Martin Luther King's voice, his gestures. He doesn't use a lot of gestures. He didn't speak as rapidly as Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a fast talker. Martin Luther King was not. There's a little bit of a difference there. But his voice was very commanding. And it was very authoritative. And that's the way Spurgeon was. Spurgeon truly understood that Spurgeon was standing up speaking scripture from the, word, from, from, from the Lord. So he didn't make apologies for it. And he didn't tiptoe around things. He was very much uh, in control, as Martin Luther King was. And uh, um, Martin Luther King also, very big on parallelism. He'll use the same phrase over and over and just change the last word. Or he'll let some phrase be a theme that echoes throughout his message. I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. Okay. And, and, and that's what Spurgeon would do. That was the, the handout I was showing you, how he'd write those little notes out to the side to be able to do those little parallel statements like that. And, uh, um, and then, of course, Martin Luther King used speech as a motivator to, to get people to, to action, which is what uh, was also being done by uh, uh, Spurgeon. So with that, I'm going to go out and see if I can find Spurgeon. But while I'm doing that... I've got, a, I've got two clips of Martin Luther King I want you to watch. 
Altogether, it's five minutes and 53 seconds. So just hang on. You may have seen them before. Watch them. I cannot watch this without it sending a chill down my spine. Um, The first one is his uh, uh, I have a dream speech. And the only footage I could find of it clips between him and some of the people in the crowd. But it's still very powerful to watch. And then after that, there's a little segment for a guy introducing the second speech, which is only about a minute and a half long. And it's a section of Martin Luther King's speech that Martin Luther King gave in Memphis the night before he was assassinated. It's called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. Now, Martin Luther King did not know, I don't think, that he was going to be assassinated the next day. But you hear what he says, knowing what we know from history, and it's it's chilling. Um, it's incredible. So with that, and if this works, let's see. If I we're have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be, be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, 
let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Here the Reverend King delivers his impassioned speech, I have been to the mountaintop, given the day before he died. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Yeah. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Well, class, I have just been informed that Mark Lanier has left the building. Um, I'm not sure where he is. Um, he had a birthday yesterday. I'm not sure he knows where he is. But he has, he has asked one of his good friends to come in and finish uh, the rest of the lesson today. And so would you join me and put your hands together and help me welcome Pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You have remarkable inventions in the 21st century. Our text this morning from the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter, the 23rd verse. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, 
and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Compel them to come in. I feel in such a haste to obey this text that I'm not going through my introduction this morning. I cannot wait to do what the Master has bid me to do. So here then, strangers to the truth in Jesus, you who are fallen, you're fallen in Adam, the sin you inherited. You're fallen in yourself, in the sin that you live. You're fallen in who God has made you to be. And as fallen people, isn't it right that we are punished? If God is indeed a God of justice, how can he not punish sin. But have you not heard? Have you not heard that God in His infinite mercy has found another way? God in His infinite mercy has designed a way for the fallen to find mercy. It is God's plan. Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, God of God, came to this earth. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust. Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. This is our God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the mercy that is there for sinners. This is the good news that it will come to pass that if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. This is a faithful saying. This is worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into all the world to save sinners. Of whom Paul said he was the chief. And so we know that whosoever cometh to Jesus. He will in no wise cast out. Isn't it strange? Don't you think it is strange? That anyone would refuse to come to God? Don't you think it unusual? Wouldn't you think everyone would say yes? To an invitation from God. But such is the level of our deprived character. Such is the evil of our nature. That we would dare say no. To God. So that is the necessity. That is the text. That is what God has set before us. God said unto his servant. And I am his servant. To go out into the highways and the hedges and to compel them to come in that his house may be filled. So it is necessary for me to compel you to come in. Hence, I am here today. If I am to compel you to come in first, I must find you. First, I must find you. Find out where you are. Find out who you are. And to do that, I look at the verses earlier in this story. In Luke chapter 14 earlier, we have Jesus saying to go quickly into the streets. 
to go into the lanes of the city and to bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt. I believe in the 21st century you might use the phrase unable to walk instead of halt. And the blind. And so that is who I come to. I come to you today if you are poor. Oh, you may be poor in circumstances. Perhaps you have not money. Perhaps you're dressed in rags. Perhaps you know not how to pay your next bill. Perhaps you need a job. Perhaps your job is insufficient. But God does not have an economic requirement for His kingdom. In fact, if you are poor, you are better off. Because we know that the poor will have the gospel preached to them. But maybe you're not poor in circumstances. Perhaps you're poor in spirit. Perhaps you have no faith. Perhaps you have no virtue, no good works. Perhaps you have no hope. Well, whatsoever you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever wishes may take the free gift of the water of life. So for the poor, I come and I compel you first, come into the kingdom. You who are poor, come into the kingdom. But not just the poor. I call out to the maimed. I am sent to the command. I am told to go into the, to go out into the streets to find the maimed and to compel them to come in. The maimed, the ones who thought they could work it on their own, who thought their hands were up to the task, who thought they could walk the walk of God. But they cannot. And you cannot. You can't obey God the way you want to. It is not within you. And I'm sent to you to lift up the banner of the cross. Because you cannot make it there on your own. Not just the poor. Not just the maimed. But even the halt. Those who are unable to walk. Those who are torn between following God or following man. And as they're torn between the two, they can't choose any way to go. They are stuck where they are. If that is you, and you can't decide between the two, I challenge you now to make that decision. I compel you to make that decision. I compel you to come in. How long will you waver? Prepare to meet God. Decide. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, obey the Lord. If Baal is God, then follow Him. You make a decision. The poor, the maim, the halt, and yes, even the blind. The people who cannot see. You who cannot see because you're lost in your sin. You cannot see yourself. You think you're good. And don't see the evil within you. You are blind to yourself. You are blind to your sin. You are blind to how lost you really are. You're blind to the justice of God and His righteousness. You're blind to the Savior Jesus Christ. And you're blind to the beauty of the Savior Jesus. You're blind to the excellence that's in the virtue of following God in His ways. You're blind to the happiness that comes from serving Him. You who are blind, I am sent to you to compel you. I am sent to all to compel you to come in.
to the house of the Lord. And so, having sought you out, knowing now who you are, I must go to work. I am here now, and I am here to compel you to come. Let me stop you on your road, and let me tell you my job. God does not have pleasure in any man dying. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Now come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. This is what I am sent to tell you from God. God knows your state. He knows your sin. And he wants you at his table. He wants you. He wants you in his house. I rejoice over the good news that my heart rejoices over the good news that I have to share with you. Yet at the same time, my soul is heavy and my soul is burdened. I confess because Many of you do not see, you do not see what God has for you. You do not see the picture of Jesus on the cross. He made the wood from which he hangs. He formed the mountain, the the, the hill on which his his crucifixion takes place. He made the ore from which the, the nails were made that pierced his hands and his feet. And he is on that cross for you. And he declares from that cross, after he receives the vinegar, he declares it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his ghost, his spirit. He died. And this was done so that a just God could allow, a just God could allow us to come into his house. A just God could now declare that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus shall be saved. So what do you say? What do you say? Is it nothing? You can't listen? I will hear you later, not today. I have too much on my plate. Well, stop. Stop your excuses, for I am here to compel you. And if I have not compelled you yet, then I'm going to change my tone. From an earnest invitation to a command. Sinner, in God's name I command you, repent and believe. You say, what's your authority to command me? I am an ambassador of heaven. My credentials are not only the confession of Jesus in my heart, but the ministry that God has placed in my hands. And so I am coming to you with authority of one who has been commissioned. For God has told me and all of my brothers and sisters to go into all of the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. For he who is baptized, he who believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He who believeth not shall be damned. That is my commission. So you are not persuaded when I command you either. Then let me try just to be simple of speech. And let me try to exhort you. 
Do you know how loving is God? Do you know the love that God has for you? I once despised him. I once wanted nothing to do with him. And then I came under God's law and his law thundered down upon my head. And I thought, what a cruel God. So strict. So rule oriented. But he and his loving mercy came to me like cool water on a hot day. And he showed me his love. And so, I exhort you, come to Jesus. You will never regret it. And if that does not work, if I cannot invite you, and I cannot command you, and I cannot exhort you, then I must, I must appeal to your self-interest. I appeal to your self-interest. What is better? Let me ask you simply, is it better to be God's friend or God's enemy? Which choose you to be? Do you choose to be God's friend? Or do you choose to be God's enemy? For those are the choices. I know people who seek pleasure, who live to seek pleasure. I've never met one who's truly satisfied. They always need another pleasure. I know some who live at self-righteousness, proud of their goodness, proud of their good works. But I have never met one who is truly at peace. For I've never met one who is truly self-righteous. Wherefore, if, God despi- if, if one who despises Moses' law died without mercy under just two or three witnesses, of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot of God? As you might say in the 21st century, If Moses' commandments could cause people to lose their lives on two or three witnesses, when you will not embrace Jesus, you have trodden upon the very Son of God in his death. Do you not understand the judgment that lies in wait for you? Because it is. So I implore you. I come to you out of your own self-interest. I ask you, I ask you, wherefore do you spend your money? Are you going to spend your money for that which is not bread? Are you going to labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me and eat with that which is good. Let your soul delight in its fatness. I come to you in your own self-interest. Why would you choose anything other than God? Why? And so I ask you who are still cold, may I implore you? May I please say that there's no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ? You are rejecting the only foundation. There is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. There is no other salvation under any name except Jesus Christ. I implore you, wouldn't it be terrible to die without Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be terrible if in that fleet moment, which can come at any point in time, a man can choke on his food 
You have these cars. They are dangerous. Especially some of the drivers that I'm intimately familiar with. There is no greater sorrow than to be at the side of someone's bed as they die, not knowing the Lord. And it is too late. So I implore you. And if that doesn't work, I will threaten you. (laughs) I will tell you life is quick. Why would you not come to Jesus? Why? Do you say, oh, I'm too guilty? Well, you cannot be too guilty. You are not the chief of sinners. Maybe you're the second worst, but Paul was the worst. And isn't it the sickest who need to go to the doctor the quickest? So, you say, I feel guilty. Maybe you tell me, I, I just don't feel I can believe in Jesus. I'm not compelling you to faith. I'm compelling you to come to the cross, to look to Jesus. I'm compelling you to come look at Jesus. Don't spend all of your time questioning whether you believe. First come and see what he has done. And ask his help. And ask his spirit to confirm for you the truth of what he's done. It will move you to faith. You may not have all of the faith to move mountains. But it will move you to the faith to move your heart. And receive the wonderful gift of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're saying no because you've said no before. You've said no before. It's part of what you say. You hear the preacher. You hear the message. And I'm not up to the message. I am not an adequate vessel to preach this message. But that is no reason for you to say, I've said no before. I'll say no again. Do not be callous. Maybe you think this is not a convenient time. This is a Sunday school class. Oh, it is a convenient time. I have not been compelled to tell you to come to the table tomorrow. I have no authority to compel you for tomorrow. I have only authority to compel you today. It is the reason we stay down front after this class every Sunday. To meet your needs and to talk to you. So if I cannot get you in any other way, perhaps I should weep. Perhaps tears would bring you in. I can tell you that there's not a person in here that the angels have not wept over. I can tell you that your family weeps for you. If not with their face, then in their heart. The tears that are shed on your behalf by those who know Jesus and who want you in the family. You can scorn what I say. You can laugh at me as a preacher. But you must know that I love you. And you must know that your family does. And that is my job to compel you to come in. And I leave my my, my job in the Holy Spirit's hands. I have done what I can. But I ask you to come in. And I ask you to, to, to embrace Jesus. Now, let me step out of character. I guess I need this, but I don't need the coat. Hold on. Let me step out of character. Um, 
a drop in the bucket um, compared to the vast ocean of Charles Spurgeon. I would have loved to have seen him. I would have loved to have seen Martin Luther King live. I'm a student of, of preaching. I'm a student of speech. It's what I do for a living is speak. But I am going to be the first one to tell you that there really is a difference between someone who speaks a message of God and someone who uses skills and tools of oratory for emptiness and hollowness. And I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for this church and its leadership and, and the, the opportunity we have to hear a gospel message at this church. I'm thankful for each of you who give me a chance to teach this class, sometimes with a little fun, but always hopefully with a message of peace and hope. And if I can give you a point for home today, other than the fact that Lewis and I and others really are up here and would love to talk to you afterwards if, if you've got any issues of faith, if we could compel you to come in, I'd love to. But um, if I could give you anything, it's this. Those of you who, who are already in and at the table. God has such a wide world and so many things at our, that, that are out there to minister to us. And sometimes I fear that we just get a trickle when we only get it from our church. It's one reason, uh, from our sermons, it's one reason, and that's not to say that the sermon's just a trickle. It's wonderful, okay? But it's one reason that we work so hard in this class to try and find other ways to help us see that God is at work in history, but that means God's at work in you because you have history. You are history. History's not really what's in a book. History is the lives that we're living. And our God is at work in your life. And how you live makes a difference. And, 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 and somehow in the midst of all of this, you've got wonderful resources in front of you to tune into, to draw closer to God. And I urge you to do it. And I urge you not only to do it for yourself, but to do it for your friends and families and loved ones. And I thank everybody who's been patient with me this morning in here. But it is my sincere hope that this class will be something that you'll come back to in an effort to try and find more of how God's hand has worked in the years gone by to further understand how he's working in our lives today. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, uh, it, it is with great humility, Lord, that I approach you because um, what you have done for us is truly beyond measure and, and we are all unworthy to, to speak to you, much less of you. And yet you call us to your family and you call us to your table and you call us and make us your children. You want us to talk to you as a father that you are. And you send your spirit to work in our hearts and in our assemblies in ways that we're not able to do. And it is our prayer, Lord, that we will be at your disposal, that we will be tools for you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.